0: I don't know, it seems cold enough in here. My knees and hips are hurting more. That so. <laughs> could just be me. <laughs> the storm's coming. I'm not cold, but sometimes cold it seems to settle into them. All. Well, we are on the, the, uh, the doctrine of canonicity, and uh, just uh, let me repeat uh, the definition of canonicity as we as we originally gave it. It's the result of the divine act of inspiration that establishes those inspired books as the body of revealed truth, of both Old and New Testament, which in turn is recognized by the people of God as the authoritative standard for doctrine and holy living. And uh, we said that the word canon means, uh, you know, it's like a, a measuring stick. It's something by which we can measure uh, other things, and, uh, um, now we, we looked at, uh, then the, uh, just examples and scripture of, of canonicity and a little bit of explanation, come on in, and, uh, and then, uh, some of the historical development is, uh, is, uh, where we concluded, now we're going to look at the, uh, the process of canonicity, so, um, where the the first of all, there was uh, apparently, uh, I think I don't know how many, but there were some uh, probably non-biblical, you know, accounts of the life of Christ as far as the New Testament is concerned, uh, because that's what Luke says. So let's just read that real quick. Twitter and blogs and you know Facebook and social media back then, but Luke does say under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, for as many as have taken in hand, to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. So it doesn't say a few; it says as many as have taken in hand. I don't know how how many many how many that that necessarily means. I mean, he could. He could be talking about uh, Matthew, uh, Mark, and, and perhaps John. Uh, but in any case, uh, there, were, there were some, and uh, there were even some that, uh, that Luke rejected. Uh, if you read on here, it says, uh, um, For even as uh, they delivered uh, them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, seemed good to me also, uh, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, right unto thee, in order, uh, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mayest know certainty of these things, whereas, uh, where, wherein thou hast been instructed. So, uh, he was concerned about getting the facts right. And uh, so, canonicity involves, to a certain extent, the rejection of that which is obviously not inspired of God. And uh, then then there's reading. Uh, so first was selection, then there's reading. And there's a, a command that certain epistles ought to be read in churches. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is an example of that. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse... 27. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. And uh, so that wouldn't just be the church of Thessalonica, uh, it would be uh, all the churches. So Thessalonica was in Greece, but it wasn't far from Macedonia, aside from the church in Thessalonica. They were all, there was also a church in Corinth and then in. Macedonia was the church of Philippi, the church of Berea, and so forth, they were all not, not very far from Thessalonica. So, um, the, a, a book is not just, even though it may be directed at a particular church or even a particular individual, like Timothy and Titus and Philemon, uh, yet they, they, they still contain instruction that is uh, valuable for every Christian. And then there's the circulation. The truly inspired books had a greater audience than the ones uh, that were, uh, you know, that weren't obviously usable for churches. So uh, there's a lot of places we can see this. Uh, look in uh, Colossians chapter chapter 4 and verse 16. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it also uh, be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So, uh, circulation indicated uh, canonicity and in then collection. Obviously, uh, a church would want to collect the, uh, the the various uh, epistles and letters that, that were inspired of God and so um, you know when when Peter wrote of Paul's writings in 2 Peter you know he said that he wrote a lot of things difficult to understand but but he called it Scripture he called it Scripture and so there would be uh, a desire for every church to you know gain a um, uh, a copy of everything that was that was Scripture and uh, uh, I think we studied this in our uh, when we went over the Book of Jude while Pastor Kim was away, uh, verses 17 and 18. But beloved, uh, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lust. So uh... jude is there exhorting, exhorting them to remember the words of the apostles which had been written and uh... so obviously churches had growing collections of the word of god and then there's a quotation uh, almost every book in, in the new testament was uh, quoted well not almost, every book in the new testament was quoted by preachers and pastors and christian, christian men uh, in the second and third centuries. And so uh, if you go in my office and you look on the on the top of my bookshelves, there's a whole series of kind of a whitish green color commentaries. That's the, um, uh, they call them the patriarchs or the, the early church fathers. Uh, but uh, those were Christian writers from the second century all the way until about little bit before the Reformation. And uh, all of those early Christian authors, they quoted every, almost every verse in the New Testament. And uh, they even quoted verses that are disputed by modern day scholars, but they were never disputed by by early Christians. Uh, you know, for example, uh, the last uh, seven or eight verses of, of Mark chapter 16, which if you pick up any uh bible translation other than the king james or even a king james bible that's like a study bible done by somebody like charles ryrie or something like that Schofield's, there's there's going to be a footnote in there indicating that you should doubt the validity and the authority of those verses and uh but when you when you read through all the quotations of those verses by the writers of the the second third fourth century they don't doubt them they don't have them so um, that's that's the process selection reading circulation collection and quotation and then the, the last thing is the, the the recognition of canonicity the recognition of it um, and this is just the uh you know I guess it's history, but the, there's something called the Muratonian canon, uh, which was established in 170 A.D. and uh, it's just named after a place. In um, what year? Uh, 170 A.D. But it's the earliest uh, canonical list uh, apart from, there was one earlier by a heretic by the name of Marcion, And he was a Gnostic, and so there was a, you know, He he really loved the writings of John. He really didn't like the writings of Paul, (laughs) Um, and uh, so you know the 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 uh, it uh, it there are four books that that are not on that list, which was Hebrew James first and second Peter, and a lot of the reason why some of those earlier writers uh, didn't like Hebrews James and first and second Peter is. Uh, they, they, they didn't like uh, Hebrew and James uh, because, uh, James, because it, if you read it, uh, it seems to sometimes conflict with what Galatians and Romans teach about an emphasis upon works. And it, that seems to make a diminishing of, of the doctrine of faith. And that's why some didn't like that. But, they're just they're just understanding it wrong, and then Hebrews because it, it doesn't list an author, and then uh, First and Second Peter because uh, of Peter uses sort of code words when he says from Babylon, um, and Babylon is almost certainly a euphemism for Rome, and uh, so because of because of those code words that you might say. Some some people rejected that. Um, then the, there was an, uh, the old Latin uh, Bible, which uh, began to be circulated in eighty two hundred. It collected all of the books again, except for those four: Hebrew James, First and Second Peter. And uh, then there's the Codex uh, seal and uh, this work contained uh, sixty four books. And uh, It it only omitted the book of Esther, which, of course, you know know the complaint for the book of Esther, right? It doesn't have the name, God is not mentioned Mm -hmm. in the book. And then it also omits the book of Revelation. And um, I'm uh, really uncertain, though, if there is an extent manuscript of of this codex, which is like a a Bible, um, or if it's only, you know, if it's only... references to it. Uh, I did a lot of research one day and went online and looked in books and I could not find out if there was an extant, you know, if one of these codecs, because it's quoted all the time from, you know, the people who, uh, you know, want to add the apocryphal books, because, but it, in, uh, but I, I I think that it only references to it exists. I don't think that it actually exists so to me that's not really a source but it is something that's listed by people the old Syriac uh, version uh, represents a text dating back to the end of the second century it excludes just second Peter and then second and third John Jude and Revelation and uh, again uh, I think it's the kind of the Gnostic influence that that cause doubt for those final few books of the, uh, of the New Testament. The Council of Nicaea um, has all of the 66 books of the Bible, but it, it does list James, 2 Peter, Second and Third John, and Judas as being disputed books. Uh, so it acknowledges that some people uh, don't like them. And then uh, Athanasius was a Christian author that accepted all 27 books of the New Testament. In fact, uh, he uh, argued vigorously for all of them. And then Hippolytus, Hippolytus, in uh, 419, and then the Council of Carthage in 397, uh, they, they accepted all 27 books of the New Testament. And after that, there really wasn't any more argument as to whether or not all 27 books of the New Testament should be accepted. And there are still certain Jewish rabbinical schools that argue against Esther, but most don't, yeah. because Esther from Esther, it, you get a holiday that's very yeah. important to yeah. Jewish people.
1: Yeah. So, so yeah. that's the yeah. reason why yeah. they
0: really, they really
1: like their it's tradition. Almost, it's almost bigger than the Passover. It's a weird yeah. one too. They eat so the deers, like yeah. the, yeah. the They make these little
0: pastries. Yeah. So simple. What? Yeah. That's traditional for you. You know, I, every time I'm studying like things like that, I always think, you guys, i I, I, I got to ask Cameron
1: about this. So, <laughs> yeah, so I think it's very You know that they were in Israel for seven years. So, right? Yeah, so I think it's very interesting. Like you said, that there is a contestation about Esther because of God not being mentioned. And that it has yielded a traditional holiday that is, that I mean, yes, it's a biblical holiday because it's in Esther, right? but it's not one that's associated with the feasts or with the law or anything like that, right? Um, with God giving them that holiday. Um, but I think it's pretty revealing that um, Esther is all about the Jewish tradition and the saving of the, of the Hebrew people without God, right? And that's really where Israel, it's, it's indicative of their character, right? Yes. They get, they get into these slumps of tradition where they trust the tradition more than the God who gave it to them. And then they end up having celebrations and memorializations of their own deliverance, right? Of uh, their own success. And that's really where they are. And the rabbinical teachings, they, they really focus more on the tradition than they do on the Bible or on the God of the Bible. Um, yeah. And I think that's what's going to drive them closer and closer to the tribulation. So I, I think Esther's very, very necessary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Esther
0: is just one of the books in the Bible that is that's history divinely interpreted. You know, it, it's uh, it's you could say his story history. Uh, so, anyways, uh, the um, that's canonicity. There's a guy named Eusebius. You probably heard of him. He's a heretic. He's he's not orthodox in his doctrine, and uh, he he kind of broke. Uh, um, Books of the Bible into four classes, and I don't really know that it's necessary to to go over these. That's uh, but. Um. They're in my notes, and if you ever want to look at my notes, I'll 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 eventually send them to you. I, I managed to send notes to him finally. Oh, <laughs> I yeah? sent them to the, yeah, I sent them
1: to you this morning. Oh okay. <laughs> See, I didn't check this morning. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah.
0: so you got it now the whole thing so you can read about homologlomia and uh, antilogomia and epigraphia and pseudopigrapha, but basically the pseudigraphia's books rejected by Virtually everybody, and there were at least 300 of these books that claimed to be written by um, apostles or prophets and weren't. And then, then apocrypha; those are books rejected by the vast majority of Christian writers, but a few people supported them. And then Anti-Logonia, they're disputed books that are accepted by most everyone. And you might say that's the case with Hebrew James. 1st and 2nd Peter, Jude, Revelation, and uh, the overwhelming majority of Christian writers supported them, uh, but a few didn't. And then there's the homoglomia, which are books acknowledged by virtually everyone to be genuine books, which is usually at least 20 of the 27 books of the New Testament. So those are the four categories. that Eusebius listed. I think it's interesting that in the, in the 1700s, in the 18th century, there was a, 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 a British scholar, I think his name was David Dareable. Does that sound British? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, he was able in just three months, going through the same books that I have there, the patristic uh, citations, but he was able in just three months to reconstruct the entire New Testament from citations, from quotations, wow. in early uh, church, uh, the early church fathers. And uh, I think that uh, he did the whole thing except for like about 11 verses. There was 11 verses that he couldn't find from the second and third century. What he could find think? find them f- past the third century. So. Uh, I think he did that somewhere in the mid 1700s, um, mid mid to late 1700s. He died in 1792, and I don't know at what point in his life he did it. But uh, there's uh, n- there's no official list made, but all 27 uh, New Testament books were obviously accepted by the majority of God's people by at least the, the third century, and uh, so that's, that's an indication of canonicity. They accepted God, God's Word as, as inherent. So, so. And uh, so that's, that's canonicity. So we, we've studied uh, the first six blocks, the building blocks of a, of a, of a good doctrine Bible. Uh, first is preparation, second revelation, third inspiration, fourth inerrancy, fifth is, Infallibility, and six is canonicity. Number seven is is the big one. It's it's the one that it's the one that engenders by far uh, the most uh, argument in, in this day and age. Preservation, preservation, preservation. And uh, so, uh, we'll just kind of go over the definition and look at a few verses before we conclude here. But, uh, definition, the providential act of God whereby he keeps his word pure and accurate so that believers of all generations have the very word of God. The very word of God. That's the definition of preservation. Now, that's my definition of preservation. I I think that... There are some people that probably have something a little bit different than that, and there are some, some really good men, uh, men that I would have no problem inviting to speak uh, and, and, and preach in the pulpit of this church and, and have friend friendship with and relationship and their, their definition may be slightly different. Um, but I just think there has to be a distinction between inspiration and preservation. So I, you're not going to ever hear me say, you know, hold up and say this, this is, you know, the King James Bible is the inspired word of God. Right. I'm not going to say that, uh, but I have lots of good friends who say that. And, and I'm, not, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to throw stones at them or, or criticize them in any way. But I think there has to be a distinction made between inspiration and preservation. And, and I get that they probably are talking about some sort of deduced inspiration or some something like that. But but the originals were inspired. Right. And that's different than what we hold right here. This this is the preserved. And and I think that I think that the King James is an accurate translation of the preserved Masoretic Hebrew text and the received Greek text. And uh, so, like I say, my my definition is maybe a little bit different than than what you might hear some other good independent Baptist pastor or theologian say. Probably somebody wants to know if we're having church today or is lost trying to get here. Uh, you can go talk to them in there. Maybe I should have had gin do it. They're probably Korean. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you want to try. How's your Korean getting back? <laughs>
1: Did I not? Yep. Yeah. All right.
0: Well, there's so many verses that we could use for, for preservation. I, I, I kind of just feel like I want to go over them uh, and not not do a short shift on it. But uh, let's just let's just read one today. Um, Psalm 12. And seven, the words of the Lord are pure words, the silver tried in the furnace of verse seven, uh, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And uh, um, I hope this doesn't sound offensive, but when we give directions, it's just never, it's never a great idea. I don't know why, but I had, I was you know, trying to get to—I was in a missions conference at Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and I broke a tooth. And there is a church a member who is a dentist. And so the, the pastor's wife was giving me directions to, uh, you know, get to the dentist's office. And she said, you get on this certain road, and you go and you go and you go and you go until you get to this street. And when you got to that street, you've gone too far, and you need to do a U-turn and go back and make your first right. And I said, well, why don't you just tell me where to turn left? Where, right, which street? And she says, well, I always miss it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that problem. I have, I have a good navigator. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not saying everybody gives directions like that. But anyway, so, I always miss it. <laughs> certain women
1: I know are spatially challenged. So, tell them street name and misses it anyway.
0: Anyways, this is a great verse on inspiration, and it's terrible that it's mistranslated, and there's a whole school uh, that teaches people that uh, thou shalt preserve them is not talking about uh, the words of the Lord. <laughs> verse, seven, verse six says the words of the Lord are pure words, and, and, and then in verse seven they say that thou shalt keep them, and, and their, their argument is that's not referring to the words, that's talking to the people. <laughs> It's talking about a eternal security. Now, how, how they you know, force that upon, uh, upon that interpretation upon the text with a straight face is, is bewildering to me, but they do it because they have to, it, because their, their theology demands it of them. It's kind of like the people who say, um, uh, for God so loved the world, uh, means that God loves the world of the elect. But God can't love everybody in the world because if God loved everybody, they would go to heaven. And since not everybody's going to heaven, God can't love everybody. And, uh, you know, if your theology demands that of you, in that case, Reformed theology, then, you know, there's, there's little hope of reasoning with somebody who puts the theology ahead of the Bible. Yeah. And so we'll talk about uh, presentation and
1: the debates of it uh, next week. So why don't we close the word Lord, thank you for your love.